Is it better to ask for help or do it alone? Ask for help. Ask for help. All right. Why do you ask for help? It's not complicated. It's better to ask for help than to try doing it on your own. For inspiration on pursuing the heart of God in humility, look no further than the life of David. <laughs> well, this morning I want to pick right up where we left off last week in our focus on the life of David. And I want to remind you again this morning that this is history. It is not merely story. It is his story. And the watershed event in King David's life was when at approximately 50 years old he was confronted by the prophet Nathan for stealing another man's wife and then conspiring to have him killed in battle. And David had been living in denial for several months as though it never happened. But when Nathan said, David, you are the man, thus says the Lord. In that moment, David came to himself, and he repented, and he was broken. And he said, I have failed, I have sinned against the Lord. And in the process of that encounter, that exchange, we learn some vital truths. One of them is that the authority of the revealed Word of God through his prophet is greater than the civil authority of the king or the president of the United States or the Supreme Court or the Congress for that matter. We also learn that being a person after the heart of God does not mean that you will live a perfect life. So you can give up on that now. David needed grace and so do you and I. But we also learn that being a person after God's heart does mean that you are open to correction and that you are teachable, even if you think you're pretty good and you've got all the answers. Now, before we move on, I want us to personalize a couple of other important learnings here this morning. The first has to do with confrontation, and the second has to do with repentance. Now, confrontation is something we all need to learn to do well. And why is that? Well, because you're going to have to employ confrontation from time to time throughout your life. You may have to confront your husband or your wife about something. Surprise, surprise. You may have to confront your child. You may have to confront a teacher or a coach. You may have to confront your roommate or your employer, or a customer. You might have to confront a renter or a landlord. And to confront effectively, we need to be equipped in the following ways. First of all, you need to have absolute truth. Don't rely on hearsay. Get the facts, because without the truth, you're shooting in the dark. So only confront when you're confident you know the whole truth. The truth about what David had done was revealed to the prophet Nathan by the Lord himself. But he started with absolute truth. Secondly, 
when you confront, you've got to have the right timing. Don't go off impulsively, fueled by emotion, to do something as important as relational confrontation. Nathan waited. He waited for God's prompting. And you see, if you react too quickly, you may regret it. Things will not go as well. Thoughtfulness and prayer in advance will always result in a better outcome. Something else you need when you confront is wise wording. And we notice that Nathan did not go before David and just blurt out his offense. He planned his approach very carefully and he used a story rather than an indictment. So what you say and how you say it matters. The right words and the right tone are both critical in confrontation. And if you don't have that worked out in your head, you're probably not yet ready to confront. Finally, if you're going to confront, you need courage. And of course, the Spirit of God was the source of Nathan's courage. He knew that King David could have him hung, and yet the prophet faced him. And there's always a degree of risk when you confront. You never know how the other person is going to respond. But don't be intimidated. Do not fear the loss of relationship with your children if they need to be confronted. And don't fear the loss of a friendship. If you have a friend that you value who needs to be confronted, speak the truth in love. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, a responsible parent or a genuine friend tells the truth, even if the truth is uncomfortable, even if the truth is unpleasant. And folks, listen, there needs to be more loving confrontation happening in Christian families and among Christian people in the family of God. So take the initiative if someone needs correction. If you're convicted that you should do something in a person's best interest, if you're convinced that you need to say something to keep someone from self-destructive behavior, for goodness sakes, don't be passive. Act. Speak, but confront effectively. Okay, so we also learn something about repentance here. We learn that it must be sincere. So what do we see in this story that can help us validate that repentance is real? Well, we have to notice, first of all, whether there's admission of sin. You've got to start there with genuine repentance. Admit your sin. And David puts it all out there. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in his prayer of confession in Psalm 51, he uses all three words in the Hebrew vocabulary for sin. Pesha, hata, awan, transgression, iniquity, sin. He uses all of them. And he prays for three blessings of forgiveness. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my sin. Cleanse me of my iniquities. And three minus three equals zero. Now, when a person holds back the truth, or when a person employs what I would call a shadow confession, that's where somebody confesses to something other than the real offense. That's a shadow confession. If they hold back any part of what, what they've done, then that person is not truly repentant, admitting sin. Secondly, making a complete break from sin. 
That's a part of repentance. Repentance means to turn around. It means to turn away. It means to go the opposite direction. It means to disconnect from the sinful behavior. Jesus said to the woman taken in adultery, but go and sin no more. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and, here it is, forsakes them. So it's not just admitting sin, it's not just confession, it's also forsaking them. That's how we find compassion. Confessing sin has to be followed by forsaking sin. Both are essential to genuine repentance. And then finally, when there's true repentance, there's going to be a humble spirit. And now we're getting at what we want to talk about from God's Word today. David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So when David was confronted, he was not defensive, he was not proud, he was not bitter, he made no demands, he had no expectations. Forgiven people are humble people who are deeply grateful for pardon and a new start. And they have no sense of entitlement. Now it's this last movement in genuine repentance that requires the most self-discipline long term. This humble spirit. And I've made a thorough study of the last 12 chapters of 2 Samuel and the first two chapters of 1 Kings. And in those 14 chapters, I found no less than 15 specific real-life illustrations of David's humility. David matured. He matured from being a broken man when he was first confronted to becoming a truly humble man for the rest of his life. And you read those 14 chapters at the end of David's life and you'll find that he cries more. He's more tender-hearted. He's more generous. He's more merciful. And he's much more relationally connected to others. And he's more submissive to the counsel of others. Now, I saw this kind of transformation illustrated a few years back in a movie entitled Regarding Henry. Maybe some of you saw it. It's a, it's a story. Harrison Ford plays a successful but ruthless New York City attorney named Henry Turner, who wins at any cost, even at the expense of his wife and daughter. But a single gunshot wound to the head during a botched convenience store robbery brings Henry's fast-track rise to a dead stop, leaving him incapacitated with no memory of the man he used to be or the life he used to lead. And in recovery, Henry becomes a very different man. A man of humility, a man of honesty, a man of compassion, a man of integrity. He becomes moral, and he becomes respectable, and he bonds with his wife and his daughter. Now that's David's story, but without the bullet. And in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 28, we see the lyrics of David's song of praise. And this is the statement of conviction. This is the statement of conviction that shapes the second half of his life. Speaking to the Lord, you save the humble. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. 
Friends, the character trait that God looks for most in you and me is humility. Someone's sure to say, well, now, wait a minute. Isn't it righteousness? No, it's not righteousness. It's humility because righteousness that does not spring from humility is self-righteousness. You've got a Pharisee if you've got righteousness without humility. Humility. That is a character trait God looks for most in you and me. So if we want to pursue the heart of God, it would be good for us to see two things today. First of all, what it was that produced humility in David. And then secondly, what humility would look like in our lives. What it looked like in his life and what it ought to look like in our lives. So first of all, what made David a more humble man? Well, it was the Lord's discipline. In a word, it was consequences. Because there was a permanent consequence to his sin. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. David was told, now therefore the sword will never, never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah to be your own. So, God's blessing of peace would depart from David's happy home. He'd be forgiven, but he would not be spared the consequences of his immorality in the lives of his adult children. He would have to live with it and try to lead his family spiritually as best he could from that point on. This had to be really hard for David to hear, and it had to have humbled him greatly. And there was also a public consequence to what David did. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So David's sin was secret. And, of course, there was a subsequent cover-up. But the consequences were not secret. The consequences were public. David's own brother, Jonadab, was a bad influence on David's son, Amnon. David's son, Amnon, assaulted his own sister, Tamar. Tamar's brother, Absalom, in retaliation, killed Amnon. And eventually, Absalom ran David out of town and temporarily took over his kingdom before dying a violent death. All this stuff caused deep heartache and public humiliation for David. You talk about scandal, public scandal in high places. This was it. So there was public consequence to what David did that brought him humility. And then finally, there was personal consequence, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. That's a personal consequence. David poured himself out in prayer for the life of the baby to whom Bathsheba gave birth, only to see the child die, knowing it was his fault. And there wasn't a thing that David could do. And this had to be so humbling. These were hard days for David. 
The consequence of his own sin were being visited on him. And it could have produced bitterness in him. It could have caused him to just turn his back on God and walk away. But he responded with consistent evidence of humble submission to God instead. Here's the thing. You and I, you and I are going to go through some trying times in our lives. We are. Maybe financial. Maybe marital. Maybe health-related. Maybe work-related. It may be loss of family, loss of friends. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Now, we can't prevent the trials of life that are a part of living in a fallen world. Is there anything we can do when it seems like life is falling apart? No matter what happens to us, we can respond to our trouble with humility. Every one of us has that capacity. We can respond to our trouble, whether it's self-imposed or whether it's visited on us. We can respond with greater reliance on the one who formed us, the one before whom we will ultimately stand alone to give an account for the life lived in the flesh. So I want to give you seven responses of humility that I see in David. And I'm suggesting this morning, if we own these If we own these seven attributes of humility, we will live out what it means to pursue the heart of God. These actionables should show up in our lives whether we're in a crisis or we're in the daily routine of life. First, to be humble is to reflect. (laughs) So often when things seem to collapse around us, we panic and we worry and generally make ourselves sick. But David did not lose his head. He turned to God. So when your world falls apart, try to reflect on these two realities. Number one, it's not your world. (laughs) Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. It's not your world. You can worry all you want about the direction the world is going, the growth of ISIS, the evidence of of, uh, human slavery globally. I can remember my father-in-law used to say, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. That was his expression. (laughs) Well, when Job's world fell apart, he kept the right perspective. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? It's not your world. And it's not your life. It's not even your life. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. And I know this is humbling, but it's also true. This world existed before you and I arrived on the scene, and it will be here long after we have departed. We cannot control whether we live or die. You can eat right, you can exercise, you can take care of yourself, and you can die in an accident or in a fall. And a truly humble person reflects on these inescapable realities from time to time. It's not my world. 
It's not my life. We need to reflect. We also need to pray. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 6, it says David pleaded with God for the child. That's an understatement. In fact, he pleaded with God for seven days, lying prostrate on the ground. He begged for the boy's life. And I wish I could tell you this morning that I have prayed with this kind of intensity. I've never laid on my face for seven days. Look at what Ian Bounds had to say about prayer. He said, trouble and prayer are closely related to each other. Prayer is of great value in trouble. Trouble often drives people to God in prayer. Prayer often delivers out of trouble. But even more so, it gives strength to bear trouble. It ministers comfort in trouble. It produces patience in trouble. Wise are they in the day of trouble who know that their true source of strength and do not fail to pray. Listen, when your life hits the skids or your world seems to be crumbling, it's a good idea to talk to caring people who can give you wise counsel, but you're far better off doing what David did, pleading and begging God about the matter. I believe prayer is the posture. It is the posture of humility. And if a person does not pray, I guarantee you, they are not manifesting humility. Number three, fast. Fasting is evidence of submission. Fasting is evidence of humility before the Lord. Look at 2 Samuel 12, 16. David fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and would not eat any food with them. Now, I know it's not popular to talk about fasting, but you cannot deny the fact, you cannot ignore the fact that in the Bible, when people went through some kind of hellish experience, they fasted as they prayed. We think of fasting as optional, but is it really? If you are ever deadly serious about something or deeply sorrowful about something, you will want to fast as an expression of humility. Well, another evidence of humility is to soul search. When your life falls apart, when troubles come that don't seem to go away, when sorrow and grief are your constant companions, take advantage of the opportunity to do this, to soul search. Self-examination is an expression of humility. And I think there are four questions that can guide us in our soul searching. One question is, is my relationship with God right? Now, David was confident of his relationship with God. He said that though the child could not return to him one day when he died, he would go to be with the child. So here's David who, in his repentance, knows that he is restored to a right relationship with God. And he says about the deceased child, he can't come to us, but we can go to him. How could he say that? Because of his faith. Can you also truly make that claim this morning. Second question, is there sin I need to deal with? David's trouble was a result of his own sin, and sometimes ours is too. And we just need to be honest in confessing and forsaking sin before God. Third question, what is God trying to teach me in this trial? 
That's a good question because you can learn some things in trial that you can't learn any other way. Is he trying to teach you humility? Is he trying to teach you trust? Is he trying to teach you patience? Is he trying to make you more considerate? Is he trying to encourage you to slow down? Is he pushing you to realign your priorities? The final question, what kind of testimony am I having if a professed Christian withdraws or gets bitter or gets drunk or begins to miss church, an opportunity to witness through a trial is lost. It's forfeited. Another evidence of humility is trust. Trust. I hear people talk about trust. I sometimes wonder if they know what it means to truly trust God. To trust God, here it is, is to fully rely on his character, on his love, on his wisdom, on his goodness. That is the only way your trust is going to be well-founded. If you trust God for who he is. So do we really mean it when we say, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good? What if your loved one is terminally ill? What about if your marriage fails? What if your child has been victimized? What I'm asking here is, do we trust in his deliverance or do we trust in him? You know, some people define the abundant life as good health, good income, nice car, nice house, nice clothes. What I'm asking is, do we trust in his blessings or do we trust in him? Trusting that God will deliver me from a trial or trusting God to provide something I want. That is not the same thing as trusting him. So do we only trust him to get us a job, sell our house, make us well? Why can't we just trust God, period? No qualifiers, no conditions. Job 13, 15 says it. This is the most humble statement in Scripture, in my opinion. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. If I can't sense that God is doing anything for me, if I feel like he's forsaken me, if I feel like my prayers are not being answered, it doesn't matter. Yet, I will trust in him. So, yes, we should pray for healing, please, and we should pray for help. But let's not make our trust in God dependent on anything. Let's trust him simply for who he is and not trust him to do things for us. The basis of our trust in God is his character. It's not his provision for what I might need or what I might want. That's humility. Humility also motivates our worship. That's in 2 Samuel 12, 20. It says that once David found out the child was dead, he arose from the ground washed and anointed himself and changed clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And the word worship in this text means to prostrate oneself before God. And that may not be what you feel like doing, but it's what we need to do when our world falls apart. David gives us a great example here. After seven days of intensive prayer, he got up. 
After he received word that the child had died, he got up, he washed, he changed clothes, and he went to worship God. Some people stop taking care of themselves. And they sink into a deep depression for months. And they reject God. Now it's natural to grieve when life knocks you down. But listen, prolonged sadness and complaining and moaning and groaning is evidence of a lack of trust in God. And it is the polar opposite of the hopeful spirit that is renewed in us by worship. Do you understand that your faithfulness in public worship and in private worship is an expression of your humility. God does. Well, finally, evidence of humility is a willingness to testify. David demonstrated humility by testifying to his servants about the grace of God, about the certainty and finality of death, about the promise of eternal Life. And at the close of Psalm 51, verse 13, David promised God, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. What's he doing? In his humility, David is pledging to God in a prayer of confession that he is going to teach transgressors God's ways. And he's going to see sinners turn to God as a result of his influence, as a result of his life, his testimony. Well, as we move through difficult life passages, we should have more and more stories to tell of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And it is an expression of humility to share your faith, to share your testimony about what the Lord has done for you, about what the Lord means to you. That's an act of humility when you do that. You are humbling yourself before him. Now, we have a whole lot more to teach people than David did because we have Jesus and we have the good news of the gospel. Charles Colson is a name that you recognize, and that's a face that you never forget right there. Charles Colson was a man like David. He worked hard to get to the top. He excelled academically in college, later as a captain in the Marine Corps. He became an outstanding lawyer before he entered politics. He was elevated to the position of special assistant to the president of the United States, President Nixon at that time. But he was broken, he was broken during the Watergate scandal. And Colson was convicted of crimes and put into prison. And virtually overnight, Charles Colson plummeted from the top rung of the success ladder to the bottom of life's barrel. And during these hard days of confronting what he had done, Someone talked to Colson about Jesus Christ and gave him a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And Colson was born again, and he actually wrote a book about it called Born Again. He went to jail. He did his time. But Colson was a changed man. And when he got out, when he got out of prison, he started a ministry to prisoners called Prison Fellowship. It's networked all across the United States now, and his work survives him. He later authored some of the most important Christian books of the 20th and 21st centuries. He became a living testimony to the power of God that can produce a full recovery after a fall into sin. 
If you would meet Charles Colson, you would not be around him very long before you would conclude this is one of the most humble men that I have ever met. He was like that to the very end of his life. Before the Watergate scandal, he was tough. He was reputed to be willing to run over his own grandmother. <laughs> he was a Marine, ex-Marine. He was an attorney. He was special assistant to the president. But like, like David, he fell and he fell hard. But like Henry Turner and like David, Charles Colson was a better man after that because of humility that drew the best out of him. And it'll do it for every one of us who receive the challenge today in our heart of hearts, in the deepest places of who we are and where we live. For you, my friend, here without Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, it begins by bowing your knee to him as Lord, confessing with your tongue that you receive him as Savior and Lord going through the experience of humbly submitting to Christian baptism, being raised to walk in a new life. And then the Holy Spirit in your life over time is going to conform you to the likeness of Jesus. And that character trait that, that Jesus that had, had as the outstanding character trait of his life, humility. Come on, he came from heaven to earth. He was born in Bethlehem's manger, <laughs> raised in Nazareth, a town where people said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Died on a cross between two thieves at the place of a skull. I'm telling you the outstanding trait in the life of Jesus was his humility. It shows up again and again and again. And he is a central figure of the human race. And he is the son of God. Is he your savior and Lord? That's what I'm asking. If he's not, we invite you to come and receive him today. We'll be here to meet you while we stand together.